0: So we're looking at all these miracles of Jesus. We've seen that they do far more than just to amaze or to bless, but ultimately these miracles, all of them, they reveal to us who Jesus is and what He alone can do for us. And as we learn more about these miracles, I think that one thing is becoming especially clear, and that is that when a miracle has something to do with an Old Testament law then they reveal even more about who Jesus really is. You know, before the cross of Christ, the law was this temporary gift from God, and it maintained and, in fact, established a relationship between the people and God. The law was a mechanism that enabled an unholy people to relate to a holy God. And there were things that you could do or that would happen to you that could temporarily render you ritually impure, that could disrupt your relationship with God and and make you ceremonially unclean. And we started to look at some of these things that under the old covenant before Jesus could disrupt your relationship with God, such as disease, like the, the leprous man. In a few weeks, Kat will be preaching. She's going to look at the subject of blood and how blood could defile you. Perhaps, though, the biggest problem of all in in the Old Testament was death. And so to understand this miracle in in Luke, which is to do with, with Christ and his way of redeeming death, what we need to do is we need to look at the law first. Really, if we're going to get the most out of the miracle, we need to understand the law. So I do invite you to turn first to that first lesson from Numbers chapter 19 verse 11. Some of us our auditory learners, so you, you'll get more out of it by not reading, but most of us would be helped to have the word open in front of us. So Numbers 19, verse 11, and just from memory, I think it's page 127 of the uh, Pew Bible, or thereabouts. Am I right? Ah, 162. If you're in the large print, it's 162. All right, Pew Bibles, plural. Verse 11, so Numbers 19, 11. Whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. That means ceremonially unclean. It means that uh, you've been defiled and your worship life and involvement in the community of God, uh, your, 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 your activity has been disrupted and you are ceremonially unclean. Now, if you look ahead to verse 14, you can see actually just how easy it is to become unclean by contact with the dead. So verse 14 says, this is the law when someone dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent and everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean seven days. So even just entering into a tent where someone had died just for a few seconds could render you ceremonially unclean. Verse 15 goes on to say that actually any open vessel that has no cover fastened on it is unclean. So even consuming something from a jar that had no lid from the tent could render you unclean. And there were laws that that regulated what happened when you were outdoors as well. Uh, A little bit more freedom outside, but uh, nonetheless, you could still be defiled by death outdoors. Verse 16 says, whoever in the open field touches someone who was killed with a sword or who died naturally or touches a human bone or a grave just touching the, 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 the burial sign above a grave, shall be unclean seven days. Outside, consistently, the thing to take note is that touch consistently becomes the thing that you must avoid. And so uh, verse 22 even says, actually, whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and anyone who touches it shall be unclean. So touching a thing that was touched by a person who touched a thing that made them unclean made you unclean as well. And uh, if you touch this thing, then you'd be defiled, and then you touched another thing and someone touched that thing. They would be defiled. Defilement spreads. That is the law. But God is a compassionate God. We read that in our psalm today. And God knows that sometimes we make mistakes, we inadvertently would break the law, and sometimes we have no choice. If you've been bereaved, or or you've lost someone that you love at at some point in your life, or or maybe just received news that they're in their last days, what is it that you want to do? Everything in you says touch. Right? We travel long distances when someone is dying, and it is natural to embrace the dying. It is natural to embrace someone who has just passed away. That is a normal thing to do. And many of us will find it difficult to let go of their body, of their earthly remains. And so if you have no choice, if you're caring for someone in this situation and you love them and you have to be in contact with the dead, God gave to his people a very simple mechanism by which they could be restored and their worship could be repaired. Highly symbolic. You see this in verse 17. This is what you do. To be restored, you take ashes and you take water. These ashes, they come from a sacrifice that has already been made. So there's no burden upon you to start making a new sacrifice in the midst of your grief. There's no financial burden on you to, to, to kill a, a, an important animal, maybe your last animal, or on top of the funeral expenses. All you do is you go and you avail yourself of a sacrifice that God has already made, Put a pin in that idea, we'll come back to it. And verse 18 says you take hyssop, a branch that is frequently associated in the Old Covenant with, with cleansing, but it's also just a really good flicking stick. It's just pointy. You daub it around in this rue that you make of the ashes and the sacrifice that's already been made. You mix it with this water. You put it on the luzza, as I would call it, the luzzing stick. That's a new one for you, isn't it? And you, you, you love it at the person. You, you flick them with all of this stuff very highly ceremonial, very visible, very clear, and it is done outside of the camp so that all can see you have gone through the steps under the law to be rendered again restored, a clear and public sign of your restoration from defilement. Now, before we turn to Luke, there's another point I want to make. And that is... Obviously, in that climate, uh, you need to remove a body very quickly, lest disease spread around the camp. But sickness and disease is not the chief concern of the law. Holiness is. And the whole point of the law before Jesus, before the cross of Christ, was a mechanism to enable an unholy people to relate with a holy God, a uniquely holy God. Twice in verse 13... We get a hint of this. Verse 13 tells us, whoever touches a dead person, the body of anyone who has died, and does not cleanse himself in that method I've just described, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Now, do you remember the leprosy sermon, if you were here for that one? You remember the tabernacle as we looked at what that was? The tabernacle was the place where God himself dwelled In their midst. At this stage in the story of God's people, this is a a physical tent. As God's people move from wandering around in tents and they're established in the promised land and they start to construct buildings and walls made of stone and a permanent place for the Lord and a temple with increasing degrees of holiness, one could draw near to the tabernacle of the Lord. On the very outside of the temple, with this sort of colonnades, like the the pillars that we've got outside there, God-fearing Gentiles could come right up to the the door of the temple. Not in, but they could draw near, if they were the right sort. And then coming through the gates of the temple complex into a courtyard, still in the open air, but within the walls of the temple itself, there. Israelites who were right with God, who were under the law, could come inside the temple complex itself. And then beyond the temple courtyard, that the, the, the Levites and the priests could come into the holy place, into the, the presence of God, where there was an altar, where there was an incense bowl, where you would find a candelabra, and then uh, the showbread, 12 cakes baked and placed in the presence of God each week to symbolized the the tribes of Israel and the people of God in his presence. And then once a year, after meticulous preparation, the the high priest could enter through this cloud of incense, past past the incense bowls and the altar and the bread, through the curtain, into the Holy of Holies itself, into the very presence of God. And any minor infraction in his meticulous preparation as the holiest teacher of Israel would result in his death. This is the throne of God above, as we've just been singing. This is the very presence of Yahweh, a portal between heaven and earth. This is fasting forward to the judgment throne of God himself when you enter behind the curtain. Only one guy goes in there, and if he's done it right under the law, he survives. Any infraction defiles the Lord. And thus we see contact with a body would be the ultimate form of defilement that you could imagine. Death being the most serious thing, this place being the most serious place. You can't even have a body in the camp because it would defile the tabernacle of the Lord. Even having a thing that touched a thing that a person touched that touched a thing that touched a person, near the outside, near the inner outside, near the inner inner, near the real inner, would be enough to bring about judgment and death and defile the tabernacle of the Lord. You don't mess around with this stuff. Utterly forbidden. And if you neglect this, if you neglect this provision of the law for your restoration, you would be cut off, it says here. Cut off certainly from the people of God, placed outside of the worshipping community of believers, But I think also many commentators believe more seriously than that. Left undealt with, you would be cut off from God himself. You do not break this law. Everyone knew it. If you knew one law, it would be this one. So with all of that context, we've got a few minutes left to look at the gospel. Let's turn to Luke 7, verse 11. I mean, we've got to do this because... This isn't sort of at the forefront of our minds, but it was at the forefront of theirs. Luke uh, 7, 11, uh, there are various ways of pronouncing words, and, and Ben and I had a lovely discussion on this. Uh, it was basically just a reenactment of the podcast bickering about words. I don't commend it to you. Verse 11, soon afterwards, he, <laughs> Jesus, went to a town called Nine, the correct pronunciation, and his disciples and a great, <laughs> and a great crowd, it doesn't matter, went with him. He went to a town. Let's uh, let's call it nine, for example, because that's the correct pronunciation of this particular Greek diphthong. So here, Jesus leading a great, excited, expectant crowd is on his way into the city. We know they're excited. We know they're expectant because he's been teaching brilliantly, and he's been doing these miracles. And so there's this kind of crazy crowd, like, you know, when the Steelers have just won and they're all pouring out. So here they all are on the way in. And verse 12 tells us, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, Edu. That means take careful note. It means look at this carefully. A man who had died was being carried out. It's the correct thing to do. Dot 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 and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. That's that's this man's mum. This is the right thing to do. Remove the body from the camp. Under the law, that's what you do. But the timing is absolutely awful. Two radically different crowds collide at this point. One's partying, one's mourning. The timing is awful. When I was at college, uh, after our final exams, in very high spirits for a joke, some people took the entire contents of someone's bedroom and arranged it all in the street very carefully, in the quadrangle, very beautifully done. And uh, these people, whoever they were, uh, also ran an extension wire from an outlet, and uh, they plugged in all his bedroom lamps just for extra credit. You know, I'm just trying to build a picture for you. And then for extra, extra credit, a sort of side prank. It's not really part of the story. Uh, They also filled his shower with peacocks. Um, Unbeknownst, just trying to let you picture the scene, that's all. Uh, Unbeknownst to us, the, the victim of this prank had not yet finished his exams. Engineers at Lancaster University, they do their exams last. He was an engineer, we didn't know this at the time. And uh, he uh, he wasn't actually in quite the same mood that we were all in, having finished university. He was sitting his final exam at this very moment, and worse, from his desk in the examination hall next to the window, he could actually see all of this taking place. (laughs) Lamps coming out, peacocks going in, all sorts of stuff. There were no small feelings later that day, I can tell you. And uh, a wild, exuberant mob in high spirits at the high point of the year collided with a man who was not in any way ready for the party yet. This is worse. What we've got in Scripture is worse. The miracle crowd and the grieving widow crowd collide ...outside of the city gates. And so we have this horrible risk. We have a risk of offending those in grief... ...which no one ever, ever wants to do. And we also have the antecedent risk... ...of of polluting those in this crowd... ...that are now gathered around... ...and pushing in against one another. I mean, you've got two crowds in a small space. What are they going to do? They're going to touch. And next, Luke amplifies the situation by telling us who this man was. He was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So in that culture, women had very few employment opportunities, and they would almost always rely on their husbands for income. And her husband has died. And so in that situation, a mother would rely on her sons She only has one, and he has died as well. So amplifying this, there is grief upon grief upon grief, and not just that, but also she has been defiled by her contact with this death, and on top of that, she's probably had to pay for this elaborate procession, and she's lost everyone, and she knows when the crowds fade away, she will be destitute and ruined. She's lost her husband, she's lost her son, she's lost her income, she's lost her holiness. She's lost it all. She's the kind of person who would cry out the psalm that we read together. She is vulnerable. In verse 13, when the Lord saw her, instantly, immediately, as soon as he saw her, first reaction, he had compassion on her. This is the first reveal. Compassion a wonderful word in Greek. It, it it means it means guts like we think of, of of heartfelt emotion get a Valentine's Day card there's a picture of a heart on it. If Hallmark had been in the first century you'd have a picture of guts on the front of your card it, it, It's this this seat of tender you know you know when something bad happens and you, you know you can almost feel them contorting there's this there's this twisted, painful, tender deep-seated kind of bowels, emotion, feeling, welling up in Christ immediately the moment he sees her. Gut-wrenching moments. There's the first reveal. God is a God of compassion. Jesus' first instinct is compassion. And second reveal that goes with it, we, we always see that in Scripture God's particular compassion is for the most vulnerable and particularly of all, I would say, the widow. The minute he sees this woman, emblematic of the most vulnerable human there is, and he's moved with tender, gutted compassion. Most people, of course, in this moment, whatever they're feeling, would back away, right? Because otherwise, you've been defiled, you've got to do the seven days of thing with a stick and all the rest of it. Most people would back away. But in Jesus' compassion, in this moment, he does something utterly strange. In fact, he says something strange, then he does something strange, and then he does something even stranger still. He said to her, do not weep. And then verse 14 says he came up. He gets close. And then he touched. Touched the beer. A very strange word. It just means a stretcher or a plank. Uh, it's a, a, like a gurney with the body on top. And touching the beer was the most extraordinary breach of the law, as we all now know, right? You do not touch the thing that touched the body. You don't even touch the person that touched the thing that touched the body, because if you do that, defilement spreads. I suspect, verse 14, this is why the bearers stand still. This is absolutely insane. This is ridiculous. This is wild. A teacher of the law has just broken the law. And it gets worse. because He starts talking to the corpse. He said, young man, I say to you, arise. Luke simply records for us, the dead man sat up and began to speak. This is evidence that it's real. And then Jesus gave him to his mother, evidence that she has been restored in every single way. And that's it. Barely any commentary on it at all. But you could do the one-minute sermon on the miracle itself. That's it. There's hardly any commentary around this unbelievable raising of the dead, uh, except for the reaction of the crowd, which contains pretty much all the reveals. Right, their reaction. What do they do? They worship. It says to us, fear seized them all. Fear is always what you find in the presence of God. An angel shows up. as an you know, angelophany, or, or, or God shows up, a theophany, and what is the first thing that happens? Is, is, is they say, do not fear, or fear not. Fear is the, is the response. Awe and wonder is the response to finding yourself transported into the presence of God. Of course it is. And they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. It's an exceedingly poor statement of who Jesus is, but it's the best they got. And then they say, God has visited his people, much better, because only God can do this. And even though the the crowds, actually two crowds, have a very limited reveal, with our perspective, with the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, we can see so much more than they saw. Look at it all. Jesus approaches where everyone else would back away. And Jesus cleanses that which ordinarily defiles. And Jesus brings life out of death. Jesus raises the dead. Jesus initiates all of this through compassion and by grace. His motive was compassion. The mechanism is grace. She didn't earn it. She didn't pay him. She didn't even ask him. It was an immediate response. The whole miracle is like a glimpse of the gospel. The whole miracle is a glimpse of this, this moment where history turns from an era or an epoch, a covenant of the law, to a new and everlasting covenant of grace. This is a moment where we glimpse the future fulfillment of the law. Because you do not need a law about death when dead men come alive. And you do not need a law. About how you approach God when He comes up to you. This is a seminal moment, a little foretaste of what the gospel is all about. Because Jesus is the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the presence of God, and He's not just near, He's touching you. And when He does this, no one dies. In fact, they come alive. The opposite of what happened to that great high priest. One more reveal. Right, if they're now all rendered clean, all of them, everything, the, the mother, the bearers, the crowd, the plank, even the body itself, if the whole lot is now rendered clean, and ordinarily for this restoration to take effect, you needed a sacrifice of some kind, and you needed to be sprinkled with the sacrifice outside of the camp, and this was a sacrifice that you didn't have to provide for yourself, but God himself provided for you, where is it? Where's the sacrifice that makes all of this work? This is the final reveal. The sacrifice that restores the defiled and raises the dead, that is provided for you, motivated by compassion, activated by grace, will be he himself. Is pointing to the cross and to the resurrection beyond. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you that in every way you are the same holy God of the old covenant completely unchanging, the same yesterday, today and forever. And I thank you that yet by your work on the cross, the Holy of Holies comes to us and now dwells within us. So I pray, Heavenly Father, that we would be touched by your Holy Spirit this morning. And if there's some necrotic part of our life, God, would you revive it? God, if there's some corner of our heart that is in need of of resurrection, in need of healing. God, if there's some place where we've been wounded, would you restore by compassion and grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.